Okay, friends, so we are still in Unit 6 of God's Economics, and we are going to look today at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, again, we've talked about this in other parts of this course. We are specifically focused on looking at the Scripture through the lens of God's economics. So I've said this a couple times, but I do have a whole other course on the parables of Jesus and taking them in their proper context, which you've seen we've been doing that. But here, we're really looking at these parables from the perspective of God's economics and how it relates to money. So there are elements. You've probably heard the parable of the Good Samaritan before, um, and there are many different ways and details that we could get into about it. But today, we're really looking at it and how it pertains to money. And you're like, what? I, I thought this was about something else. Yeah, it is. But, you know, money, it's in there. It's in there. And so we're going to take a look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what we've been doing is taking all of these parables, looking at the context leading up to Jesus telling the parable, because we often get a lot of understanding, like, why is Jesus saying this? He Is he responding to a question? Is he responding to a situation? You know, like every parable always has a zinger at the end of like, boom. Oh, okay, that's the point. So why is Jesus making that point right now? What led him to tell this parable? And then we're also looking at the context that follows the parable being told because we can get some insight um, about walking with God and the point of God, the purpose of God out of that as well. It's just good to look at the whole big picture whenever we are studying the scriptures. So We're in Luke 10, and looking at the context of this, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and there's a lawyer, which means not a lawyer like we think of in Western culture or America today, you know, who goes to court every day and is, you know, um, calling up witnesses to defend crimes. But this is a scribe or someone who deals in the law of God, a, a lawyer or scribe of the law, right? So he's a study of the law of God or Torah. So he's that type of, I don't know another word to to say, scribe, lawyer, but he's a student of Torah. He's an expert in the law of, of God or the law of Moses, right? So this is who. He's the expert. He's kind of got some pride issues. You know, he knows the law. He's, he's the expert in the law in the room. And so he challenges this young guy, Jesus. He's 30-something years old and thinks he knows it all, right? Because what does he think? He's God or something? Uh, well, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so the lawyer challenges this Jesus to know the way to eternal life. He wants to know the way to eternal life. So that right there, that also gives us an indication what the focus of Jewish life is, is, hey, how do I get into eternal life? Hallelujah. That is the whole point of from Adam and Eve. Somehow we've been cut off from the source of life and God promised to send a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent who tricked us out of our access to God and the tree of life. So God's going to send a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent so that we can be restored 
to eternal life with God. And we know that's going to come through Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, then through David's descendants, right? So that's what the whole expectation and purpose of Israel is. So this lawyer is like, all right, how do I get to eternal life? And what the scripture actually says is that by fulfilling the law, Deuteronomy 6.25, if you are faithful to obey these commands, the commands of the Lord your God, that will be righteousness unto you. I think we've covered that in a prior unit. So the way to righteousness, the law. See, a lot of times the new covenant is not taught correctly because everyone's so busy trying to make the case of it's righteousness by grace through faith alone. Yes, it is. Okay, calm down. But that doesn't mean that the law doesn't work. The law does work. Jesus proved that it works because Jesus fulfilled it and then earned all of the blessings that the law promises. The only reason that the law doesn't work, and that you'll recognize this, the law weakened by flesh. What does that mean? The law is perfect and holy and right and true and good. The law will do everything that it claims to do. The problem is not the law. The problem is the flesh. No one except Jesus, who had the Holy Spirit in him and divine nature in him, no one has ever been able to fulfill the law, to attain righteousness before God, and then because of that righteousness, be worthy of eternal life. So this lawyer is like, what's the way to eternal life? And his understanding of that would have been to fulfill the requirements of the law. And that is a correct understanding of the law. Okay, so he's saying to Jesus, what's the way to eternal life? And Jesus, knowing who he's with, you know, he's like, well, what's in the law? How do you read it? Right. So these Jesus isn't intimidated. He's like, okay, well, you tell me. What do you think? Show me what you got. And so the lawyer, he 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 knows the correct answer. He knows the correct answer. He says the two great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. That's number one. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, spot on, man, do this and you will live. Now, the part that Jesus kind of left out there is that, well, dude, the problem is that you are totally unable to fulfill those commandments because you have a human heart that's sinful, so you're actually not able to love God with all your heart, and you're actually not able to love your neighbor as yourself, so it's going to be a problem for you. But if you're able somehow to do those two things, yes, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer seeking to justify himself, you know, here's a big debate starting to happen. He's trying to provoke Jesus into a debate and he's trying to say, okay, well, let me look for a loophole. What's a loophole in this? How can I, how can I attain this, right? How can I get my hands on this? So desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, so even to this day, the Jews in and their um, their scholars, you know, have these different types of debates. So, like, they will have debates over the tiniest little things, and they will have debates over what the rabbis said about these things. So, asking something like, who is my neighbor? It is a totally legitimate question of, all right, so I know I've got to love God with all my heart, and I've got to love my neighbor, but let's look at the parameters. What exactly does that mean? Now, this is a phrase um, that is more popular to Day, like in Western cultures where, you know, everybody's trying to use the same language or whatever, and they'll say, well, what does that look like? And so that's what this lawyer is doing. He's saying, okay, so I have to love my neighbor. Now, what does that look like? 
So immediately, Jesus launches into a parable. The parable is his response to the lawyer asking, who is my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. All right, so Jesus, he just loves to pack a punch, doesn't he? So he's talking to an expert in the law. Now, a priest was the representative before God, so man's representative before God and God's representative before man. So the priests were the experts in the law. They were the adjudicators of the law. The Levites also, the Levites were responsible for teaching people how to distinguish the holy from the common, the good from the evil, right? So the Levites and the priests were supposed to train everyone in the way of the law. The law includes many provisions for taking care, especially of your fellow Israelites, but also of the foreigners and the sojourners, taking care of them the way that you would want someone taking care of you, being kind to the poor, extending mercy to the poor, lending without interest. We talked about that in a prior unit. So the law has many, many, many instances of talking about kindness to the poor, remembering the poor. So the priest and the Levite absolutely should have known better than to just walk on by this man who was half dead by the side of the road. But this is the difference. When you're operating under the law, Now, this is under law. We today have the new covenant, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, which hopefully helps us to make different decisions. But maybe the question is, does it? Because, you know, I know people, they're on their way to a really great meeting, and there's going to be a really great speaker there, and, you know, well, and there's going to be really a good anointing, and I got to get myself in that anointing, so I'm on my way to this meeting. Oh, you, you know, dead guy by the side of the road, I can't stop for that. I've got to get to this meeting because the, the person speaking is really anointed. Do you see it, friends? And the Levite, 
oh, I got to keep my life clean. You know, I've heard this out of many evangelical pastors' mouths um, about, no, well, I can't, I, I can't stop by the road to help a woman, you know, whose car is broken down because I need to avoid all appearance of evil. Okay, well, it's a whole other story, but that's not exactly what that scripture means. And what you just did is you twisted the word of God to excuse yourself from showing mercy to someone in need for the sake of how it appears in the sight of other people. That is exactly what the priest and the Levite were doing. Well, I'm a priest. I can't associate with someone who's, you know, fallen half dead and has been beaten up by robbers. I don't know what sin they did that caused them to get themselves into that. Now, maybe you're not thinking that they got themselves into it because of sin. And maybe you even have compassion for the person that you're driving by on your way to wherever it is that you're going. But if you have used the word of God to excuse yourself from showing mercy, then please repent. Repent. That's wrong. That is exactly what the priest and the Levite were doing. They were excusing themselves, using the law of God, contorting the word of God that they knew so well but didn't have in their own hearts. They knew it in their head, but the heart of God had not yet entered into them in the way that they lived their life. They used the word of God, contorted it to their own purpose to build their own reputation in the sight of men, rather than taking care of someone who'd been stripped and beaten and left for dead. But a Samaritan, the Samaritans were despised as half-breeds. And there's a whole story of how Samaritans, you know, came to be. And they were part of the northern kingdom of Israel that were exiled into Assyria. But then after they, all of the exiles were sent out of the land, wild animals started attacking the Assyrians that moved into the land. And so they figured, well, the only way, you know, we're, we must not be worshiping the gods of this land correctly. That's why the wild animals are attacking us. So we better bring back some of the exiles to teach us how to worship the gods of this land so that these animals stop attacking us. So they They brought back some of the exiles, and the exiles taught them how to do things God's way, but they continued to worship their own gods and worship the gods of the land, which is the God of Israel. So it was this blended form of religion, the gods of the foreigners, the Assyrians, and the God of Israel at the same time blended together in the land of Samaria. So hundreds of years later, the Jewish people, the pure Judeans, you know, they were like, you half-breed Samaritans. We, we know what your origin is. We don't want anything to do with that. You half-worship Assyrian gods, half-worship the God of Israel. No way. We're with the line of David. Messiah comes from our line. We want nothing to do with you. you, you no, we're the ones that produce the Messiah. So a Samaritan, a Samaritan, a half-breed. But somehow the Samaritan had more of a grasp of the heart of God than the priest and the Levite. So the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he saw him and had compassion. But here's where it is from the standpoint of God's economics. He took his own money, oil and wine, to bind up wounds. He took his own money to do that. That's like, in today's terms, you take him to urgent care and you pay the bill. 
whatever the bill is. He poured on oil and wine. That's expensive to clean the wounds, to take care of this man who was probably incapacitated and could not participate or help himself. Then he set him on his own donkey. That means, yeah, put him in your own car. Yep, the dirt, the grime, the blood in your own car. (gasps) Heaven forbid you'll have to get a car wash. Brought him to an inn, took him to a hotel and paid the bill. Continued to take care of him. So maybe by now he was conscious. Went to a restaurant, got him a meal, made sure he had food, got him a water bottle, you know. Turn the TV on. <laughs> you, you obviously, friends, you know that I'm going back and forth between a Western, like American version of this, and the the actual parable in the scripture. So forgive me for that. I'm taking a little license, but I hope you're getting the point. I really do. I really do. And the next day, he took out two denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wage, so two denarii is two days' wage, right? So he took out plenty of money took out plenty of money, gave it to the innkeeper, said whatever he needs. The bill's on me. I'm taking care of this guy's bill. I don't know him. I don't know what happened to him. I'm taking care of his bill. And if you need need any other money to take care of him at the standard that I have shown you how to take care of him, then I'll pay it when I get back. I'm good for it. You know, I'll pay it. That's That's where God's economics comes into this. Now, I know that this parable is about showing mercy. But sometimes it costs money to show mercy. And sometimes that means it's not about starting a GoFundMe so that you give $20 and everybody else gives $20 and it's okay. No, you spend it. Don't publicize that you're taking care of this guy. Don't do a Facebook fundraiser. Okay, you spend it. You spend your own money to look out for the lost, the hurting, the broken, the left behind, the left for dead. Your money. You spend it. Person to person. It's easy to give to an organization, and they're the ones that are actually in hand-to-hand combat, face-to-face with these people that are hurting. But you, when you see that person who's hurting, what do you do? Do you show mercy even at your own expense? Do you spend even your own money to see that they get a meal, have a place to stay? are taken care of, are bound up in their wounds. I remember one day, I always keep things in my car. This is, you know, just the way, one of the ways that the Lord, you know, has led me to always be prepared to serve. So I always keep things in my car right behind where the driver's seat is so that if I see someone and the Holy Spirit prompts me, I can reach back. It's right within where I can reach with my hand. I can reach back behind the driver's seat and take out a a goodie bag for the person on the street who is in need. And I know that's a minor thing. And I know that's not enough. And I know that's only snacks for today. And then I'm on my way and the traffic light changes and I'm on my way. But yes, there are tracks in there that will lead them to Jesus. And But, you know, sometimes it's just the fact that I have rolled down my window and I'm not afraid to look them in the eye and tell them that Jesus loves them. I know it's a small thing. But the, the story that came to mind one time, 
You know, it depends on what the season is, what I'll stock up behind me, but I always have little bags that I can give away to people. And, you know, one time I was at a traffic light and waiting to make a left-hand turn. And so I, I roll down my window and I start talking to the guy and I, I hand him the bag and I just started telling him what's in there. You know, like, hey, man, Jesus loves you. He really cares about you in there. There's some snacks for you. They won't have melted. You know, there's a, this in there for you. And he looked and he's looking at the bag and he's like, oh, shirt. I got a shirt. And I was like, yeah, man, there's a clean shirt in there for you. So you can change your shirt. You know, there's a bar of soap. You can take a shower when you find a place to take a shower. And he was like, oh, socks. Yes, I've been asking God for socks. That's so look at my feet. And he lifts up his his pants and he he didn't have socks. He he his, he had shoes and his feet were in his shoes. But his feet, oh my goodness, these feet. There's no way to describe these feet. His feet were in so much pain. And that man had literally been crying out to God for socks. And he told me, he's like, yeah, I know, Jesus, I've been calling out to him. I asked him for some socks. So just in that moment, just because I had gone to some wholesale club and got wholesale socks that I carry around in my car for whoever the Holy Spirit prompts me to give them to, this man had been asking for socks. So you know what? It just so happened that day that I needed to take a left-hand turn at that traffic light. He needed some socks. And God gave him some socks. It cost me some money. I had to go get the socks, you know. But they went to the one that was crying out to God. God took care of him. We've got to learn to show mercy, friends, at our own expense. You do it. You show mercy. Mercy is costly. It costs Jesus everything. Jesus poured out his whole life. His whole life was poured out so that you could receive mercy. You are the poor and the broken. And Jesus gave it all for you. So will you not give a denarius, a day's wage, two days' wage, a hotel bill, a restaurant bill, a medical bill? Do you have it in you? Do you understand what Jesus did? To turn that mercy around and show it to somebody else? So wrapping this up, just the post-context, right? So what happens after this parable is told. And I I just I I I love God. I love the word of God. Nothing is missing, nothing is lacking. It is perfect in every possible way. And this is the balance. This is the contrast. For those of you who might be more on the side of overworking, and especially I would I would add to that overworking in ways that the Holy Spirit has not directed you to be working. So, you know, like there's a lot of this in the evangelical American church. You start, you know, a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter. You do this and you do that. And you think, oh, I'm doing all these wonderful things for God. But somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit goes missing. And yep, you're doing good deeds, but the doing it for God and doing it with God's heart and God's mercy and God's love and God's direction, the Holy Spirit could leave and you would still be a philanthropist. You would still be a social service worker. But everything has to be 
emanating from a relationship with God. Serving God, showing mercy or doing works of kindness, service is not and never will be a substitute for relationship with God. Now, this is one of the biggest deceptions that the enemy uses because it's a distraction. You, it's very easy to convince yourself, look at me serving God. I'm serving God. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm in relationship with God. I'm serving God. Look at the stuff I'm doing. I'm busy. I'm important. I'm doing stuff. It's a, it can be a big distraction. If you're not careful, you can lose your connection with God and your work can get disconnected from God. If you don't keep yourself abiding in Jesus at all times. And so the post-context of this parable that I love so much is the story of Martha and Mary, which we referenced earlier about Martha was busy, 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 serving, 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 but Mary sat at Jesus' feet. God does not want us so distracted. Yes, it's wonderful to be the Good Samaritan. And as you are going along your way, be the Good Samaritan along your way as much as you can. But sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, understanding the teachings of Jesus, pouring your heart out in devotion to him, pouring your life out in subservience to him, whether he wants you to go out and work and serve today or whether he wants you to stay in and sit at his feet today. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So yes, hallelujah, amen to the Good Samaritan. Jesus said for acts of mercy, you go and do likewise. But don't ever confuse acts of mercy with the one thing that is required. And that is relationship with Jesus, abiding in him. That is the new covenant way to eternal life. 